and following. I got uh, the wrong notes there, so, but I'm excited to be back into the scriptures this morning. Happy to be preaching the word again, even if I can't fully stand. Um, as it stands right now, I have about a week and a half before the next appointment, at which point in time I believe I'll be getting a walking boot, and hopefully that means by the Christmas Eve service, I will not need the crutches to come up here, Lord willing. So again, thank you everyone who's been praying for me. The, really, the recovery has gone extremely well, um, and I'm grateful to you, grateful to God for hearing and answering prayer, and grateful to be able to stand up here uh, and to preach. And uh, it gets a little tiring on the one leg um, when I preach, on the good leg, because I'm trying to balance and put very little weight onto the other leg, but Lord willing, we'll get through to the whole service. Last week, we looked at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, where the angel Gabriel visits Zechariah, and he appears to him in the temple, in the holy place, and announces to Zechariah the birth of his son, John the Baptist. Now, we're going we're gonna to sort of ratchet it up a notch. This is even more important. We're going to look at the angel Gabriel visiting a young woman by the name of Mary, in announcing the coming of the Messiah, the Savior. One thing to understand is that between the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and the New Testament, which is written in Greek, there's about 400 years, which means there's about 400 years of silence from God, at least when it comes to Scripture. Of course, God is still at work. That's when Hanukkah and all the events that take place there. But as far as the Bible concerns, there's a 400-year period of silence until God here announces the great main event, right? This is it. This is the big event. This is God's main act. And so God makes much of Christmas. He sends his angel Gabriel to announce it. Now, I don't know if you guys have gotten your Christmas announcements out there yet, your cards and letters uh, and hopefully invitations to church and so forth. This is God's announcement of his greatest work his main event in saving sinners, the gift of his son, who is both fully God and fully man and born of a virgin. Look with me at Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 26. Luke 1, 26. We read this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High 
will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative, Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading, the proclamation, and the receiving of his word this morning. God announces Christmas. God announces Christmas. This is where we're going this morning. We should have an outline up on the screen. Uh, first, 26 to 31, Jesus comes fully human, fully man. 32 to 33, Jesus is the Son of God. And then finally, 34 to 38, Jesus was born of a virgin. He comes fully human. Look with me at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel. I had mentioned before that Gabriel only appears in the Old Testament in one book, in the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, he appears to Daniel. Gabriel just means man of God. So this angel appears to him, announcing the coming day of the Lord. That God is going to work decisively after a certain length of time. And in that time, God will work and bring judgment. The next time we see Gabriel is announcing to Zechariah the coming of John the Baptist. And once again, here the coming of the Messiah. But this time, he's not sent to Jerusalem. He's not sent to the temple. He doesn't appear in the holy place to a priest. He appears in a little town called Nazareth. Nazareth. Now, today, we know Nazareth. We know Nazareth because of Jesus. That's how we know Nazareth. But the truth of the matter is, without Jesus, we would probably never have even heard of Nazareth. Nazareth is not mentioned in the Old Testament once, not even once. It's not mentioned he's not, uh, in Josephus, the most important historian of Jesus' time. It's not mentioned in any of the rabbinic literature. It's not me mentioned in the Mishnah. It's not mentioned in the Talmud. In fact, Nazareth does not even appear in a writer outside of the New Testament until Julius Africanus, who writes two centuries after Jesus' birth. It is a little no-name town that nobody really cares about, maybe a little like Haverhill, all right? Now, I love Haverhill, so I'm not trying to bash Haverhill. I'm just saying on the national or international scale, we don't really rate too high. And it's not even in the southern area of Judea. This is in the north in Galilee, in sort of what they would have seen as the backwoods area of Israel. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth, was a saying the Pharisees had. And yet, here we go, here we come to a Gabriel himself showing up to a virgin who is betrothed to a man named Joseph. Of course, we know this story a little bit here, but betrothal was a legally binding engagement. So in American culture, of course, if you're engaged, you can break off the engagement. There's no commitment, legally speaking. A betrothal back in the first century in Israel was legally binding. To break it, you needed to divorce. That's why it says that Joseph wanted to secretly divorce Mary, even though he wasn't actually married to her. She's a virgin. They're not together physically, but she is legally bound to a man whose name is Joseph. Very importantly, Joseph is described as of the house of David. Now, by this time, Israel did not have a king. Their only king was King Herod. He wasn't even Jewish. He was placed there by Rome. They didn't really have any great love for Herod. And the line of David was not, right now, actively ruling, but they kept records. They knew who was from the line of David. And Joseph, this carpenter from up in Galilee, 
living in this town of Nazareth, knew that his lineage was from the line of David. The virgin's name, of course, is Mary. And when the angel appears to her, he says, greetings, the common word to greet someone, kairain in the Greek. Sometimes it's translated like in the King James Version as hail. Um, it's not hail in the sense of proclaiming the majesty or the royalty of someone. It's simply the word for greetings. O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, when Mary hears this, she is greatly troubled. And many have asked, commentators have said, why would she be greatly troubled? He didn't say anything about the virgin birth yet. That's, that's beside the point. All he said is, favored one, the Lord is with you. And I think this really speaks to Mary's humility. Now, she doesn't understand why she would be considered favored. She's just a Jewish girl from Nazareth. Why would, this, why would God send his angel from heaven to appear to me and say, oh, favored one. In what sense is the Lord with me? Yes, he's with all of us, but what special sense would he say this to me? She tries to discern what sort of greeting this is, and the angel says to her, similar to what he said to Zechariah, don't be afraid. Uh, when angels appear, sometimes in the Old Testament, it's for judgment. Uh, sometimes it's to take your life. It's not a good thing, right? The angel of death, you know, we we're familiar with. But here, Gabriel says, this is not something bad. I'm not here for judgment. It's good news. Don't be afraid. Mary, you found favor with God. Mary is an outstanding example of godliness. A faithful, young Jewish girl who loves the Lord. Similar to Zechariah, faithfully serving as a priest, Mary is a small-town girl faithfully loving and serving the Lord and finds favor with God. And then he proclaims, verse 31, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus literally means Yahweh saves. Yahshua. Shua is a form to mean, to, in Hebrew that means to save. And Yah is a shortened form of Yahweh. The Lord saves. It's also the New Testament equivalent of Joshua. Who is Joshua? He's the one who led God's people, Israel, into the promised land, right? So here is the new Joshua who will lead truly God's people into the eternal promised land. Those are the connections that would clearly be seen by naming your son Joshua or Yeshua or Jesus. And he continues to describe who he is. But before we go there, notice that Mary, of all people, is chosen for this task. Mary is human. All right? <laughs> now that may, I don't think that comes as any great surprise, but it maybe just should be clarified. She is fully human, which means her son is fully human. Mary is not the queen of heaven. Mary is not a goddess. Mary is not divine. She is not the co-redemptrix of heaven. She is a wonderful, godly example of a faithful Jewish girl who is willing to serve the Lord. In fact, maybe one of the best examples of faithfulness we see in all of the Bible, but fully human. Mary is Jewish. We mentioned this last week, that God works within the Jewish system. He works in, within the temple. He reveals himself to Zechariah. Well, here he reveals himself to a young Jewish girl who is seeking to obey the Torah and following the Lord, even in the small town here. Mary is an unexpected Jewish human being. She is not, at least with Zechariah, even though he was a relatively unknown priest, he was a priest. You might expect that. He's serving in the temple, the biggest, most important place in all of Israel. He's a man, which in first century uh, made a big deal, was a big deal. He's married, and he doesn't have a family, but he's going to start a family. With Mary, you see the most unlikely choice. A young, 
not older, a female, not male, unmarried, not married, young girl from a small town, and God works through her. God always tends to work through the unexpected. Just as a, a little side note, don't ever think that God can't use you. God can't use, who am I? I don't have any, enough education. I'm not smart enough. I don't have all the experience that other people have. I don't know the Bible super well. I'm too young or whatever. I'm too old. I have too many issues, too much background, too much history. God can use you as he chooses to use Mary. But one thing to note here is that if Mary is fully human, that means that Jesus is fully human. He is like us in every way, yet without sin. Why does it matter? Why does it matter that Jesus is human? Is that, is that important? Yes, it is. Why? Because it means he has come to save humans as one who himself is fully human. That God was willing to enter into our broken and sinful world and become like us. The truth of the matter is, you can't redeem what, if Jesus wasn't fully human, he can't redeem humans, right? Some people of different heresies over time have said Jesus wasn't really human. He was more like a body that God used like a puppet and kind of, you know, just animated and worked in this world. Or he sort of just appeared as a human, almost like a ghost that God used. No, he came to redeem humans. He himself was fully human. Actually, Gregory of Nazianzus in 329 to 390 he lived, uh, said this, that which is not assumed has not been redeemed. Or in modern English, if Jesus wasn't that type of human, then that type of human isn't redeemed. If he did not have a rational human mind, then our minds have not been redeemed. If he did not have a human spirit, then our human spirits have not been redeemed. If he did not have a body, our bodies would not be redeemed. He was like us in every way. But the moment that, moment that Jesus became fully human, like us, he had bones and blood and teeth and nerve endings that could feel pain and a heart that could be broken, a spirit that could feel depression and loneliness and betrayal and ultimately death. If Jesus is human, if the Messiah and the Savior who has come to us is fully human, that means he's mortal. And how will this story end? But by his death, and as we see ultimately, his resurrection. It also means this. It means that God eternal knows what it's like to be a human being. I don't know if there's any religion, philosophy, belief system out there that has that, anything similar to that. God, the eternal creator, eternal spirit of infinite power and knowledge, knows what it's like to be a human. Now, when we say knows what it's like, we don't mean that God has infinite knowledge, so of course he understands humanity because he understands everything. We mean God has experienced humanity. So when we worship God and when we pray to God and talk to him, we are talking to one who knows our loneliness. Not just knows our loneliness because he's all-knowing, because he's experienced it. We're talking about one who has experienced grief. Jesus lost his father, Joseph, when he was fairly young. We're talking about one who knows your chronic pain and the suffering that you are going through, who knows what it's like to be betrayed, 
who knows what it's like to be physically injured and to hurt. We're talking about a God who has experienced it. This has been such a powerful part of the Christian faith that great theologians have actually said this is maybe the turning point, the thing that brought them to faith. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the the idea that God himself suffers is far and away the most convincing piece of Christian doctrine. Bonhoeffer wrote that in prison by the Nazis, in which he was ultimately martyred. The great John Stott, right? A lot of us love John Stott here, the late John Stott, great Bible commentator, said this, in the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in the light of his. And Stott says, I could, I, go, I could not believe in a God without the cross, without physical suffering, one who's gone through it. When you talk to someone, if they say, I want to give you some advice about what you're going through. Let's say you lost a loved one. And they sort of lay out, here's what you need to do. And here's, here's, here's the, the ten steps that are necessary for you to get through your difficulty and your situation. You probably don't really want to hear it. Unless they say, And let me tell you about how I got through losing my wife, too. That changes everything, doesn't it? When we worship God, we worship one who's experienced what we have experienced, a great high priest who is like us in every way. More than that, of course, he's more than human. Jesus is fully God, of course, but he is also the Son of God, the Eternal Son. Look at verse Uh, 31. And behold, you'll conceive in your womb, bear a son. He shall be called Jesus. 32. He will be great. I love that. That's a good summary of Jesus. He is great. All right? I think we can all agree. Jesus is great. He's a name recognized throughout almost the entire world as being truly great. Jesus is great, but more than that, he will be called the Son of the Most High. Later on, John the Baptist is called Servant of the Most High, slave of the Most High God. Jesus is not servant, he is son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Ah, he fulfills the messianic promises through David. He will reign over the house of Jacob, that's Israel. He will be in fulfillment of all the promises to Israel and his kingdom, will, there will be no end. Jesus is fully God. First of all, he does fulfill the messianic, the prophecies about the Messiah. Uh, One, that he would be Jewish. He's from the house of Jacob. That's clear. Fully Jewish. By the way, we talked about this briefly last week. This is one reason why anti-Semitism has just no place within Christianity. It just doesn't, it doesn't fit at all. We literally worship a Jewish Messiah. (laughs) It, It doesn't, I don't understand how those you know, particularly, you know, some who are claiming the Christian faith and are also spouting out their anti-Semitism. It just doesn't fit whatsoever. Jesus is also the son of David, as we said, through his father, Joseph. And here, Luke makes the connection through the father. Joseph is, of course, from the line of David. And his adopted son, who has all the rights and privileges of his adopted father, is in that same line. It's possible that Mary herself was also from the line of David, But Luke doesn't even need to go there. He just says right here, through David, he fulfills that. And then this prophecy that he will reign 
forever. Now think about that. If you have a human institution, how does it last forever? I mean, nothing in this world tends to last forever. So David's son will have a son, will have a son, will have a son, and they'll reign forever and ever and ever for, you know, 10,000, 100,000, a million years. How in the world was that prophecy to be fulfilled? Well, we find out right here. Because a son of David would be eternal and would reign forever. By the way, um, and Mitch, you've told me this before, if you, don't, if you don't think the Messiah has come yet, I don't know how anyone's going to fulfill these prophecies. Because we have no idea who the tribe of Judah is today. We don't know who falls under as a... Uh, those records are long gone to history. So if it hasn't happened yet, I don't know how we'd ever be able to figure out who it is. But here's what Israel was not expecting. That the Messiah, the Savior would be God in the flesh. That he would be God with us. That he would be the eternal son. Divine. Dwelling with his people. You know, Jesus' life was so remarkable that the first heresy that the church dealt with after Jesus' lifetime was that he wasn't actually human. Did you know that? You might think that the first heresy would be that Jesus wasn't actually God. He was just a man who lived a long time ago, right? Or he lived a generation ago. No, nope, the first heresy was his life was so remarkable, perhaps he was never even human at all. Right? That's the first heresy that the church had to deal with. But he is fully God and fully man. By the way, this is, this is so different than anything else we see outside of the Christian faith. Jesus is not a hybrid He's not 50% God and 50% man, right? He's not 200%. He's 100% God and 100% human. You might say, how is that possible, right? Isn't that a contradiction in terms? No. You can have a circle that's 100% round and 100% red, right? They're not contradictory terms. If God eternal wants to take on humanity, he can do it. There's no contradiction from being fully God and fully human. But just like we said, Why is it important that Jesus is fully human? Why is it important that he is also fully God? One, in order to redeem us, he needs to be eternal. If Jesus was just a man and no more, and he died on the cross, how could he die for the sins of the entire world, right? Doesn't make sense. Yes, he was fully human, but he was also eternal, enough that he could bear an eternal weight of sin in a moment in order to pay our penalty. He had to be God to do the things he did. He had to be God to to perform the miracles that he performed, right? In order to walk on water and calm storms, in order to turn the water into wine and to feed the 5,000. He couldn't be just a human being. He was more than merely man. In order to have the authority of his teaching. He teaches not like the scribes, but one that has truly has authority. One who speaks clearly, honestly, and with authority to us. And honestly, to live a life of perfect love. No human being ever lives a life of perfect love. He had to be divine. This matters to us because it means that God loves us enough to come into our world. Again, there are plenty of belief systems that say you can get out of this world, get rid of your flesh, you die, and then your spirit goes into some type of utopia or something like that. 
the Christian faith begins with God coming into our world with all of its pain and with all of its brokenness. He came to us to redeem us because he loves us. You know, um, this is maybe a little pet peeve of mine. When I hear sometimes Christians, uh, particularly within the evangelical world, talking about the love of God, sometimes it gets really mushy, right? Like, God is my boyfriend. Um, you know, God and I are just, uh, you know, in love together, like in a romantic relationship. I, I just don't see that in the Bible, to be honest. What I see is something far deeper than that. What I see is a God who is willing to do for us what must be done to rescue us from ourselves. What I see is a love that is willing to go to the depths of human suffering and pain and rejection to save me. <laughs> Friends, I, 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 don't need a, I don't need a girlfriend. First of all, I got a wife, so I don't need a girlfriend. All right. <laughs> but I need a God who loves me like that to rescue me from my sin. I heard my wife. <laughs> Friends, what Christmas tells us is that Jesus is fully human, the son of Mary, but he is also the eternal son of God. By the way, he didn't become the son of God on the day he was born. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave us his only son. In order to give us a son, you have to already be a son. Right? He, he didn't become a son because then he didn't give a son. He gave a person who became a son. No, he is the eternal son of God that he gives to us that we might not perish but have everlasting life. What is more, he comes born of a virgin. Born of a virgin. Mary asked the question, how will this be since I am a virgin? It's not a question of doubt. She's not disbelieving God here. She's simply asking, how is this going to happen? <laughs> Uh, I'm a virgin. I'm not married to Joseph yet. Uh, we have a little while longer on our betrothal. How am I going to conceive? How am I going to give birth to a son? And the angel answers her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. It will be a miracle, Mary. And the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And then tells her about Elizabeth with John the Baptist. We learn that they are relatives. Um, we don't know their relationship, second cousins or something. We don't know exactly what their relationship is, but we learn that they are also related and that she's into her sixth month. And then verse 37, nothing will be impossible with God. God can do whatever God wills to do. And Mary says, notice her response in verse 38, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. I don't know if we have another example of that level of immediate obedience to God and his word in all the Bible. Mary, again, is a great example for us today. And the angel departs. Unlike Zechariah, who didn't believe the angel and was silent for nine months, her response is, I am the Lord's servant. Let him do what he wills. Again, there's nothing in all of ancient literature, anything even like this, by the way, one common slander about this was that Mary, in some sense, had some sexual relationship here. Uh, that is not even in the picture at all. That was common in Greek mythology. You might have a, a Greek god like Zeus who would come down and have relations with a human being, and she would give birth to Hercules, right? That's, that's how those legends came from. None of that is in mind here. 
In fact, it isn't even the Father who comes down, right? It's mentioned the Holy Spirit. Out of the three persons of the Trinity, the Father is clearly recognized in the masculine. The Son, of course, is recognized in the masculine. The Holy Spirit is a dove. The Holy Spirit comes down with his very presence over Mary, and he works a miracle. Look, the language here is actually very specific by Luke. The word there for overshadow is the word used in the Old Testament to describe the Shekinah glory of God, his dwelling in the temple, in the tabernacle. Uh, So what happens here is God is overshadowing Mary and working this great miracle. Now you might say, well, why did it have to be a virgin birth, Pastor Rick? And there are many who have doubted the virgin birth. They said, I I have trouble, that's the one thing I have trouble believing. Rob Bell, not a good guy to read, but wrote a book in which he said, look, if the virgin birth isn't true, no loss, essentially, is what he said, right? I totally disagree with him in that. One thing, I think it's kind of strange that someone would deny the virgin birth and yet believe that Jesus walked on water. I'm not sure why, (laughs) you know, if Jesus could raise Lazarus from the dead, but, you know, this virgin birth stuff, I just can't believe. It doesn't really fit. In fact, the virgin birth is an easy one to deny because it doesn't need any real proof. We know that there was slander against Jesus from the earliest days, even from the time of the Bible itself is written, that he was born of an illegitimate birth. And there's no way for Mary to prove that isn't the case. They even said specifically that she had an adulterous relationship with a Roman soldier. That was the earliest slander against Jesus. In fact, when the Pharisees have a debate with Jesus and they say to him, we are not illegitimate children, we are children of Moses, that's probably meant as a bit of a dig upon Jesus and the sort of thing, this sort of uh, gossip surrounding his birth. Why is this important then? Well, one, because God prophesied this is what the way it will be. In Isaiah 7, 14, you're probably familiar with this, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. That this would mark off that God is doing something special and unique and powerful in the life of this person, Jesus. It's, it's, it makes his birth unique. It's one thing to be born of Elizabeth, who is an older woman beyond the years of childbirth, It's another thing to be born completely from a virgin entirely, that he would be special, he'd be unique, he'd be set apart, that God would be working his main act, the primary event, that which saves sinners like us. Again, friends, I hope you have sent out your Christmas cards or Christmas letters by now. I hope you've sent out your invitations, perhaps, too, for people great time to invite someone to church by the way Um, well throughout the year they say this is the time that most people who are interested would respond well to an invitation Uh, easter is like the family gathering anyone who is part of our church even if you only come a couple times a year you come on easter because if you know if you don't come on easter are you really even part of a church right so that's what easter is but christmas tends to be that time of the year where people are looking for something a little more than all the consumerism. Here we see God himself making the announcement. This is the main act. I've given you 400 years of silence. I've sent you my angel Gabriel, and I've told you what will be. He will be 
fully human, like us in every way, yet without sin, in the eternal Son of God, born of a virgin, come to save you. This is the gospel. Friends, Christmas is really important. It's really important because it's an awesome holiday, right? One of the best, if not the best holiday. But because of what it represents. Christmas is a gospel holiday. It means we're not alone in this world. It means that God in heaven didn't wait for us to reach up to heaven and get to him. He stooped down to come to us. He gave us his son, who is God with us. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this reminder here, right before we celebrate Christmas together as a church, but with our families, the announcement that you have done what we could never do for ourselves. You sent one fully God and fully man who lived a sinless and perfect life and who died in the place of sinners as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. And what is more, rose from the dead in triumph over the grave that all those who respond in faith would be yours. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.